Well, welcome to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are proudly sponsored by Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. Speaking of the Government Finance Officers Association, we have today an emergency episode special episode to talk about the impending federal government shutdown. And we have with us from the Government Finance Officers Association, Emily Brock, who heads up their federal shop at GFOA. We're going to just get right into it. We're going to do this one a little bit different. Normally, we have questions and themes and a roadmap, so to speak, that we want to get through with our guests. This is going to be different. We're going to call this a family meeting. This is just an opportunity to get together. Everybody gets to be heard. Everybody gets to say what they need to say. It might be a little unstructured, but that's perfectly okay given the circumstances that we were in. We wanted to talk about the impending federal government shutdown and what that means for state and local finance. First things first, Emily, I want to say congratulations. We've been at this a year. You are our first repeat guest. So thank you for taking the time to come back. I am honored. And unfortunately, it's under weird circumstances. You keep, you invite me back. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't couldn't think of, of anyone better to, to help us tackle this uh, particular subject. So we are uh, recording this the morning of the 28th of September, a little bit less than 72 hours away from the impending federal government shutdown, which now seems as though it's going to happen. And all indications are that when it happens, it might be for much longer than we've seen in recent experience with going to the brink with shutdowns. Lots of things we want to get to, what that means in particular for state and local finance. Thanks again, Emily, for being here. Again, this is a family meeting, so the floor is open. But as always, we'll start with Liz. <laughs> yeah, Emily, um, I, I'm. Can you start out by giving us kind of the lay of the land? What are what are the sticking points with each side, um, and and what federal funding streams are are potentially on the line here? Sure. Um, well, so unfortunately, I would say one of the sticking points for us here in Washington and the work that we do is that we have hindsight now. Um, we've experienced a sh- government shutdown. Um, we experienced it just prior to the COVID pandemic. Um, and there was a series of weeks where the federal government was shut down. So we've, 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 we, we can exercise some recent learning about what has happened in the recent past. But of course, since then, within the pandemic, there have been several federally administered uh, funding programs that have been established. So while we may have understood what the lay of the land is prior to the pandemic, we now have many, many um, gov- federal government operations that, that tie a federal fiscal relationship with state and local governments. What I'm talking about is the recently finished uh, CARES Act, but also the American Rescue Plan Act, and you know there are new, new, um, new and rulemaking um, processes on the horizon with the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act or IJA, and also the Inflation Reduction Act, such as IRA. I would say, though, really quickly, just to, I mean, there are the things that we learned in the past um, are are extremely important and still relevant. You know, communities that have high high proportions of federal workers are going to be disproportionately impacted. Communities that are military communities, or if your community is um, near a, a national landmark or a his, or a park where you depend on the the tourism economy, um, things are going to get tight. And we did experience that in the past. Um, so so I think you know we'll walk through a, a myriad of sort of different types of federal funding that are impacting our communities. But I would say pay attention to the complexion of your community, understand the federal fiscal relationship with individuals and families in your communities, pay attention to the federal fiscal relationship between the federal government and your government. 
So whether your state or local depends on federal funding. And last but not least, there are a couple of things we need to focus on with the market itself, the municipal bond market and how that's impacted. Can you get into that, the municipal bond market? Uh, what, what are the potential implications? Yeah, well, so um, in the end of last year, uh, one of the major sticking points of the discussion of passing a, a stopgap was to get to a better understanding of what direct pay subsidies meant um, in the relationship between direct pay subsidies. They're the pro- past promises of past Congresses mm-hmm. and the subsidy mm-hmm. payments they make to state and local governments. And we could talk about a couple of examples. The, the number one subsidy that we that we always look to and point to are farm subsidies, um, and those right. are subsidy payments made in rural communities. There's medical and hospital subsidy payments, but there's also the subsidy payment that's um, sort of uh, the moniker of uh, federal subsidy payment to state and local governments, which is attached to the Build America bonds. Um, so those are direct pay subsidies that are paid for through the filing of tax notices. PAYGO is a part of this discussion <laughs> because PAYGO is attached to the federal budget. PAYGO becomes vulnerable again. Um, and so we want to make sure to dissociate that. But um, it's impossible to because that became a highlight conversation of the end of the year last year. And and right now, uh, we have filed an amicus brief to the Supreme Court to actually <laughs> to um, have the, the highest law of the land make a determination that it is unconstitutional to sub- subject those to sequestration. That's a different conversation here. However, yeah. <laughs> PAYGO, is still, PAYGO is still wrapped up in, in the Build America bond subsidy payment conversation. We were on a on a panel a couple of weeks ago, Emily, you and I, and one of the questions that came up specifically with respect to market impacts was around this distinction between essential and non-essential federal employees, which is, we could probably spend a whole episode just talking about that and, and what that means and how challenging that can, that can only be if you're managing federal employees. But essential, non-essential distinction really matters when we think about the potential muni market impacts of this potential shutdown. There's a few ways, and 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 some of them are a little bit peculiar. Can you talk a little bit more about exactly how that essential non-essential distinction might matter here? Yeah, it, uh, the Office of Management and Budget actually has a determination of of what positions are essential versus non-essential. And the one rule of thumb that everybody goes back to is: Are they? Does the person does this position manage essential activities that protect life and property? Boy, if we distill that down to that. <laughs> And we look at the scope of the federal employees. Um, it's hard to sort of, uh, from an outsider, make that determination. So it's helpful to have you, uh, OMB, make that determination for us. But it does also mean national security is is swept up underneath that. And another important thing is that essential employees provide administrative support to no year or multi year programs. So what that means is sort of those non discretionary programs, and that's important to the states. That administration of non discretionary programs means that um, those programs that are on a roll basis, we do have until the end of the year, well, such as like Medicaid, such as other programs that, that um, are, are, are part of that state relationship. Um, however, there are many programs that are on a month-by-month basis. There are many discretionary programs now that are part of our general fiscal patch. And um, I think that those kinds of things leave us a lot more vulnerable. Definitely. And it, it, even things like the, we, I know in the past we've talked a little bit about the 8038s, which is yeah. this you know, oh, sort yeah. of pretty mundane kind of workflow thing that, that you're doing, filing, you know, filing paperwork essentially with the federal government that describes your borrowing activities, your investing activities and so forth. But the people that these are paper forms 
the people who actually open those envelopes have been non-essential in, in past shutdowns. Is that correct? That's correct. Right. While the filing of the 8038s is an essential activity, the people opening the envelopes were deemed non-essential. So we found several payments that just kind of didn't get processed. And I think another important thing is, um, you know, in this world of digitizing and information and making things more technically savvy, there's a lot of paper stuff that the federal government still does. And so to be cognizant of that and to to have a better understanding of that is is important to survey that essential, non-essential. And one thing I did want to mention is talking about paper filing, notice and comment of the federal register is also a paper filing process. And so what will happen is the rulemaking that is associated with IRA and IIJA, if it depends on notice and comment, like if there is a notice of funding opportunity out there and it depends on paper filing, then the, the federal register will stop. Um, the process because it can't take in all of the different comments. So that will delay the rulemaking. That may delay the um, the competitive grant and the selection of the competitive grant itself. Um, and so all of those things are especially um, vulnerable right now. Would that apply to current open opportunities? Because there's some yes. pretty big nofos out right now. Okay. So like yes. all of that process could could come to a screeching halt, essentially. Anything that falls under the federal register process, which is all of it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. And, and we're, we're, you know, while administration of the program, like developing the portal or trying to make a determination of how to a- administer the proceeds once they're distributed is still going to advance the, the, the comment part, the public comment part is the part that's going to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, that, that I think is, is unproductive and extremely frustrating for folks like us. On the market impacts to the, you know, in the past with, with shutdowns, one of the first things that seems to happen is they close the the slugs window, right? The state and local government securities lending window, very important uh, for refundings. And certainly there were a lot more advanced refundings in the past. Have they, have they closed the slugs window? And if so, it, it, does it matter as much in a world today of, uh, of less refundings in the media market? Slugs still does matter. The slugs window, of course, does still matter because current refundings happen quite a bit. But I, but that said, the slugs window is closed often as the Treasury's, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury deems extraordinary measures or has made a determination of implementing extraordinary measures. Slugs window was closed during the debt ceiling debate and often becomes sort of a topic during that period of time. But there are uh, so many levers in the Treasury that are still up in the air. So if we look at, of course, the slugs window is a part of that, I think I, I'd really like to, to to sort of hammer down the fact that the Office of Recovery Programs in the United States Treasury didn't exist the last time we had a shutdown. That is a highly administrative function of the federal government that we've come become extremely interdependent on because of the American Rescue Plan Act. It's not because of the distribution of funds. The funds have been laid out. There are a lot of communities still working on spending those funds, but we've entered the period of time right now for the American Rescue Plan Act where compliance and reporting is required. For some entities, it's quarterly filing, um, meaning you've got to, on January 30th, April 30th, I know the dates, trust me, I'm a weird party trick. On those dates, when those reports are filed, um, you, you have... 26,000 reports that are going in. If there's a technical glitch, if there's a little bit of a challenge, if a community experiences, um, you know, anything that would potentially not allow them to file their notice of compliance and then become 
out of compliance, who does that fall on? Whose shoulders does that fall on? Is it the United States Treasury or is it the city of Emily, Virginia? Um, and that to us, the technical support question and the ability to, to remain in compliance for these massive federal funds out there, the fact that it is still up in the air can be very problematic. And this is all against the backdrop of having to work really hard to convince a lot of communities to come into that funding world in the first place. And this certainly doesn't help with the with the, the confidence that's needed to actively participate. There's no sense in creating whiplash in a community where all that we're trying to do is do things the right way, revitalize from a global pandemic, and to get our feet back on solid ground. And those the the quarterly reports are for for larger governments, but is there is there a a, a deadline coming up relatively soon for those smaller governments as well? The smaller governments are in April. The quarterly reporters for it's all counties, all 369 counties are actually uh, quarterly reporters. Yep. I want to I want to do like a compare and contrast because I was looking up, you know, what happened with the last the last shutdown 2018 slash 19 was, I think, the longest on record. But that was a partial shutdown. Um, and that was still pretty devastating. I think ultimately there was something like $11 billion in gross uh, domestic product impact on the U- on the U.S. as a whole. But this would be a full shutdown. Can you explain the difference between those two? Yeah. So the the way that the appropriate or the budget, the federal budget process works is that there are 11 appropriations bills that get wrapped up into what we call an omnibus. So the omnibus is the complete federal funding package. And we have had systematically um, several omnibuses pass without, <laughs> without question. But sometimes what happens is you have um, specific, like let's say defense, defense uh, advances, defense passes and is appropriated. That's a portion of the federal government that is funded, um, but it leaves everything else behind. What's up for debate right now? We've got agriculture, we've got aviation, we've got um, defense. We have all of those different bills that are being suggested to advance. Now, what Schumer's, that is uh, Leader Schumer's um, bill that he's sort of put forward for consideration, bipartisan consideration, is simply a continuation of the continuing resolution, but he has lumped it onto the aviation, the the, <laughs> the airline uh, funding bill, the FAA. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's partially funded. If he gets the CR, if he gets FAA kind of scooped out and he plops in the entire full omnibus, which is a continuing resolution that gets us, gets kicks the can down the road, then it is a full extension of the federal government. Until then, um, if there is nothing that can be agreed upon, then it will be a complete government shutdown. And when we talk about a complete government shutdown, what we're talking about is 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 pretty fundamental. We're talking about energy, aviation. We're talking about commerce. We're talking about interior, treasury, transportation, EPA, all those things that attach themselves to states in a very fundamental way. Now, states, remember, they get these these sort of non-discretionary allocations, it's formula-based. Um, there are continuation of programs that are built into those funding bills. However, when the funding stops at whatever period of time the appropriations bill stops, then you know they are dependent upon another budget to get passed. So those types of things are important. But as I mentioned earlier on, the things that aren't attached to the non-discretionary um, uh, types of funding, that is SNAP, 
TANF. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about basic social fabric support for your communities that could stop within 30 days. Um, and that is something that local governments need to prepare for. Yeah, certainly that uh, when you think, and, and of course, this is now against a backdrop of state revenue forecasts turning a little sour, a little more uncertainty about budget making at the state and local level. Those are those are not immaterial amounts of money when you start talking about you know, SNAP in particular as a key part of the safety net at the state and local level that suddenly becomes a question mark. Yeah. Well, and and so I think that while we're talking about the federal government's relationships to state and local governments, I think we have to critically break down the state and local government part because oftentimes the state is the conduit for the funding that the locals receive. Um, we're talking right now with the National Association of State Budget Officers to pull together a checklist um, so that local governments can not only ask their states important questions and then better understand what the federal uh, fiscal framework looks like to be able to to critically assess what pauses, what lapses, what they might see around the corner. And, and what you talked about earlier on, is that like a, a preview of, of that checklist? Yes. <laughs> yes. So our, our checklist is being developed right now. And we're going to focus on, um, again, what what's the complexion of your communities? Number two, what are the impacts to individuals in your communities? What are the impacts to your government? And number three, what are the impacts to, to market access? And what, what might we expect about that? I, I think there are some folks who are kind of uh, looking at, especially my market friends out there, um, who I know are listening to this podcast, who are interested in any potential credit downgrades to the sovereign if something like this should happen. We're watching Wall Street right now and <laughs> Wall Street's blood pressure hasn't gone up. It's like they kind of know <laughs> what's going on. They they feel like they've seen this all before. Um, and um, there's no indication right now that the market feels the whipsaw that individuals in the communities are going to feel. But that said, I'm certain our credit rating friends are watching this carefully and critically assessing what kind of action will happen and when. Yeah, that's such an important point. I, it seems hard to believe that a, a prolonged shutdown would not have, be a black mark on the, the sort of governance questions. If you are a AAA rated municipality and you, you, you're you're not doing any of the things that the federal government has been doing. You're not close to running out of cash. You're not able to not pass a budget. You know, you're not neglecting on a lot of your fundamental service delivery obligations. You can't do any of those things and expect to keep a AAA credit rating if you are in muni land as we know it for states and localities. Maybe maybe this one is not the one that causes that that uh, that downgrade, but it seems really unlikely that this could go on for a long time and have there not be questions about those fundamental governance issues going forward. Yeah. You know, and we talk with our international friends quite a bit at GFOA, just, you know, and in, in capital asset planning and budgeting and other things like that. And what is what is so great and also not so great about the United States government is the level at which we push down sovereignty. And to your point, mm-hmm. it Justin, it is it is completely aware. It is a it is a central nexus of decision making that local governments have to pass a balanced budget in order to get essential services out to citizens that they see at the grocery store. The federal government is offside of that, 
and uh, we need to ensure that they understand that. So outreach is still especially important. Um, you know, they're panicking, but still you are constituents and you vote them into office. <laughs> it's time for us to do our outreach um, and help them to better understand that um, this shouldn't be a regular occurrence. This shouldn't be something we have easy recall on. Um, this shouldn't be something we have a checklist on for crying out loud. It, it, where there are these deep fiscal relationships built, you know, the, the beauty of our United States Constitution built that too. And so that's where we are right now in this terribly frustrating time. Um, and we could use your outreach on the Hill. So we've covered the implications for states and localities, Emily, and they are they are many and they are concerning. Um, again, we're less than 72 hours from this happening. There still is, of course, a chance it may not happen or there's a chance that if, if there is a shutdown, it may not be a prolonged shutdown. Just in terms of the, the kind of inside the Beltway stuff here, what needs to happen for there to be some sort of resolution, even a, even a short-term stay of this for uh, a, a few more weeks or whatever it might be. What's the, what's the way forward for Congress? Yeah, you know, when, when the nomenclature changed from if to when, we kind of <laughs> knew it was time to start setting our sights on, okay, so what, what might happen? And um, now it's important to note that the Senate cannot uh, propose a funding bill. The House of Representatives has the power of the purse of the federal government. So the, the funding bill has to originate with them. The, the, the fundamental funding bill has to originate with them in the 11 appropriations bills that are attached to that. Um, however, Senator Schumer, um, the leader in, in the Senate, has has a clever idea that he's posited. He's taken the FAA, which is a must-pass bill. The FAA is the aviation bill. Um, he's taken a must-pass bill, and he's kind of scooped out the innards and plopped in what's called a continuing resolution. And that continuing resolution, I believe he has a 45-day um, extension put on that, and that gets them to the end of November. Now, remember, November is a critical time for these guys because everybody needs to, gets to reelected at that point or not reelected at that point, as the case may be. And so that it's at that critical time when there's going to be a lot of, especially post-election, a lot of critical negotiations of either a lame duck or, or current complexion of Congress to try to hammer out the details to continue that forward. So that's best case scenario. The, the the if changed to when, um, when we talked about process. So um, there has to be a period of time where, where the bill, the FAA, has to be read by the parliamentarian on the floor. It takes a period of 24 hours. They have to pass the bill by Saturday night. Sunday starts October 1st, and there will be a lapse, and federal government will shut down as of October 1st. It has become abundantly clear through what we understand. The whip is not there. The vote is not there to pass the FAA, um, the continuing resolution. And so there will be a period of time where where operations will shut down in the federal government. The Senate can still meet. The Senate still still can come together. They need to whip a, um, a vote. Um, that vote has to, has to pass the funding mechanism in order for it to, um, the continuing resolution to happen. If the Senate can't do that, it is entirely up to the House to create the 11 appropriations bill to move, to move the funding of the government forward. That's where we will see a prolonged shutdown of the federal government because it's very unlikely, as we know, that the Republican Party is is divided right now. There is there are not the votes to pass a continuing resolution, an omnibus that would fund the federal government permanently. And so that's kind of where we are right now. Of course, key, 
keeping an eye on the headlines and trying to better understand McCarthy and McConnell and how they are working with their party, but also what kind of creative ways the Senate Democrats are thinking of moving the federal government forward are the things that we're focusing on right now. So based on the discussion we've had here today, then Emily, what's your advice to those of us in the world of state and local public finance for how to get through these next few weeks and months? I'd say pay attention to what's happening. Um, you know, it's easy to disregard the headlines, but there is little bits of, of good information in those headlines. Also pay attention to all of the national organizations who are creating checklists and information um, that may be helpful and useful to you. And understand, too, um, the National Association of State Budget Officers, National Governors Association, excellent resource, us, GFOA, and our sister organization, National League of Cities, National Association of Counties, will be collecting stories and um, mitigating efforts that are out there. And we're um, going to be sharing information with our membership. Um, so so please don't hesitate to send your stories our way. Um, and we're looking forward to augmenting them and sharing them with our, our the members of our association as well. Indeed, indeed. Emily Brock from GFOA's Federal Liaison, thanks so much for joining us for this family meeting emergency episode of the Public Money Pod. I wish it was under better circumstances, but we always appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Public Money Podcast.